0: very much. And it's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to welcome my guest, Alan Black. Uh, Alan, we're going to get into your whole bio and career, but why don't we start with when you were the CFO of Zendesk, you're getting ready to take it public and you ran into a stock market that maybe, like the stock market is right now, uh, where stocks were going down and the IPO market window was closing. Uh, tell us that story.
1: Yeah, well, good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, I'd uh, I guess I would I would describe the situation. It was a lot like today, where the stock market um, clearly is uh, is in choppy waters, and we got uh, we got through the you know the process and decision making about filing and coming out of uh, you know confidential jobs act treatment, and over the course of the next three or four weeks, uh, the Uh, comparable companies that we would compare ourselves to when we were going public were off 20, 25%. And it was a go-no-go decision uh, to be made. Um, Our bankers, seeing what the markets were like, recommended that we delay. Um, But there really were no guarantees that it was going to get better um, in, in the near or even the intermediate term. So we decided to press forward. And we got to the we got to the third day of our of our road show in New York. End of the day, and it was a sea of red uh, on uh, on the street. And uh, got to our plane uh, to fly up for the next day in Boston. And the lead banker um, for uh, for Goldman Sachs got on and, and asked me whether I had a plan B. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, those weren't those weren't words that I was really excited to hear because they had they had advised us to wait, right? Anyway, uh, before before uh, launching the roadshow, I had reached out to um, our venture investors and and you know recommended they be at the ready in case conditions uh, required that they uh, they put forward a show of support um, you know a, a, an order in in the order book. And by midday on Thursday, um, all of our VCs had put in um, orders at thirty percent above the high end of the range. Uh, And, you know, we didn't end up needing it. Uh, We had a terrific run from that point onward. um, And by, you know, the Friday afternoon, the book was fully covered. And uh, following Wednesday, we priced the deal, allocated shares, and I think six or 7% of of the shares we ended up allotting to. Um, our venture capitalist uh, investors who had come to uh, to our rescue so to speak to help uh, buoy everybody's uh, spirits as we uh, as we hit uh, hit the road uh, in Boston that day so you know you look back that was May of 2014 and was it seven years or eight years later coming up on eight years later and the markets you know between have been low they've been high and I think that's one of the things I take away is never get to never get to uh, ebullient that everything is great in order to get too despondent that everything you know the end of the world is upon us because it's usually never as good as you think it is nor is it ever as quite as
0: bad as you as you fear it is what a dramatic story uh so tell us about that board meeting you had a board meeting when goldman is telling you not to go public and you ended up deciding to go ahead with it what was that like was it yeah it, was, it wasn't a board
1: meeting it was an informal meeting of our lead left and lead right bankers. Um, so Goldman, uh, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and, and their, you know, their top technology uh, sector bankers were recommending, and I think they spoke for all the underwriters. They, they recommended that we delay. Um, and we had in the course of the two years pre uh, pre uh, IPO had probably had 350 meetings with investors. And what we were seeing was that uh yeah, the reason why investors were balking at that point uh, was because they were concerned that they were um, public investors were performing uh, the, the last round of financing if you would or providing the last round of financing normally provided by by venture investors and i think that they didn't want to do that anymore and so there was a pause if you would that uh, the public investors said we want companies that are clearly on a path to being able to be, you know, capital um, efficient and able to, once they're public, you know, provide for themselves from the from the growth of the company without requiring additional capital. Well, we were free cash flow positive at this point. And so uh, although we were losing money as a SaaS company um, often often is, uh, you know, at that point, uh, we we really were in a position, I think, that was different from some other companies that were not only losing money on a gap basis, but also bleeding cash. So to degree we we decided that we had the flexibility to press on. Um, and we also knew that to sustain our growth, it was either we go public then, or probably say in the fall of 2014. But again, there was no guarantees the market conditions were going to improve, and we'd have um, if that if those didn't prove possible, we then we'd have to complete another round of, of venture financing, and um, ultimately decided if we need capital, let's let's go for it.
0: And normally, venture investors are selling in the IPO or soon after in a secondary and follow-on offering after the IPO. But you had to go back to your venture investors then and say, in order to get this IPO done, we need you to commit to buy 40% of the stock we're selling. Was that a difficult conversation with those yeah, venture I, investors?
1: Yeah, you know, so I think to you know, to the credit of our of our investors, they they believed in, in the opportunity and were happy to do it. None of them were having to put forward orders. Um, and I think they decided to do so thinking that it was. Um, a good valuation for them, you know, to be able to get additional um, piece of the company. And, and as I said, in the end, we, uh, we really didn't need the, their capital. I think one of the lessons you learn when you take a company public in an environment like that is you should expect that your order book is going to fill up in the last 36 hours. And so you, you you really don't have any view. It's kind of like a company with, you know, with 95% of its revenue coming in or at least its bookings coming in in the last week of a quarter. If you have that kind of business, uh, well, imagine you're trying to raise capital and you're getting everything in in the last 36 hours of your, of your roadshow, Um That's what you're going to have probably if you're trying to take a company over, you know, public over the next several months, just because investors rightfully are are going to be gun shy, having seen what's happened to their portfolios over the last two, two and a half months.
0: Well, uh, that's that's a very interesting uh, experience that you live through and very good for the investors, too. I think the people who bought in the IPO have done very well. Let's go back to the beginning now. Where did you grow up and what's your family background? Was finance in your in your were you inevitably going to be in finance as a CFO?
1: Yeah, well, so it's interesting. So I grew up in Montreal, Canada, um, and actually, you know, come from a family of of, of chartered accountants. Ironically, um, my intention when I started university um, uh, in in Montreal, I was going to McGill. Um, you know, I was going to be a lawyer, and as fate would have it, um, one of my business law professors, when I Asked him about and you know giving me advice in terms of that path. He goes, well, if you want to be a, a practicing lawyer in a law firm, then this is what life is like. Um, if you really are intent on being a corporate attorney, then I think there are other roles in in companies that um, you might have that would you know that you might find more more enjoyable. Um, and that got me thinking, and ultimately, um, I decided that I was going to become a chartered accountant, uh, which you know was what. Um, a CPA used to be called in Canada now in Canada they're called CPAs as well um, but back when I became one it was a chartered accountant was the profession and uh, and so um, you know between my father being a CA and most of my uncles being CAs it probably you know I should have figured it out earlier than I did but took a couple more conversations with people to, to sort out what I should do.
0: And did, did your dad encourage you? No,
1: no, not at all, right? I think he uh, wanted me to make my own decision and I think it was right. I mean, you know, know, clearly he was happy and delighted that I I ended up becoming one, but um, it's more important as a parent, I feel this way myself, uh, to let your kids find their own way and their own path. Um, Each of us has our own destiny to a degree. And, um, you know, I think, as I said, he was happy, but never pressured me one way or the other.
0: So you're graduating college, you have your degree, uh, what's next? Where do you start?
1: So uh, I began working in, uh, in, you know, in in the profession in in Montreal. I worked for KPMG at the time. It was Pete Marwick Mitchell, um, um, later merged with KMG to form K, uh, KPMG and worked there for four years. And a uh, little history for you in, uh, you know, in Canada, there's, uh, for those who aren't uh, familiar, there's a English and a French um, um, part of the country where I grew up was predominantly French-speaking, um, but I was English. Uh, my my family had moved. My parents had moved uh, to Montreal uh, for for my, my for my father's work, and uh, and so I was English Canadian growing up in French Canada. And uh, day came along, and you know you know in terms of lucky breaks that you have in your uh, in your career, uh, one of the partners asked me. Uh, if I would be interested in a transfer. um, And I figured, well, they're, you know, they're probably interested in maybe, you know, want me to go to Toronto or at the time the oil sector was booming. So maybe to Calgary. And uh, so rather than tip what I would like to do, I just said, well, what did you have in mind? And he (laughs) responded, well, where do you want to go? And now, that made me think they were desperate to get rid of me, if <laughs> it was anywhere but the Montreal office. But uh, I asked for a few days, uh, came back and, and said, if I could, I'd like to go to Silicon Valley. And so that was 1985. Uh, and my only time in my life that I've been through Silicon Valley was when I was, um, you know, earlier, um, I was still in university. I finished a summer job in Western Canada and decided I would find my way to L.A. for a few weeks and drove through. But that was it. Um, but I I did sense, uh, you know, from you know, reading uh, the newspapers at the time, what was going on in, in technology just seemed an interesting place uh, to uh, to gain some experience. And so I ended up in Silicon Valley, which was supposed to be for 18 months. That was a little over 30 years before before I finally uh, moved
0: elsewhere. And was your interest in Silicon Valley because you liked technology, or because you thought, from a business point of view, it was a growing sector? And if oil and gas had been growing, you would have gone to Houston.
1: Yeah, I think it was more the uh, you know the the, the uh, fact that it seemed like a sector that would be interesting, and the whole thought process when uh, when they uh, you know talked with me about going there and you know and said it would be something they'd be willing to arrange. It was also with them expecting that I would come back and in time head up the Canadian high-tech practice for, for the firm. But there was so much more high-tech as you can uh, obviously imagine in, in Silicon Valley than all of Canada combined that from a career perspective, it made it
0: made more sense to, to stay. And how long did you stay at KPMG and how you think about the next step in your career? How, how, yeah. how does, Do you have a framework to, to advise people on this call when they think about staying where they are versus taking the next step? How, what are the pros and cons of your life?
1: Yeah, so I ended up staying at uh, you know KPMG through as, as, as a senior manager for ten years, um, and you know I think most on the call, but probably not all are you know are uh, if they had a um, past in in public accounting, they've moved on from it. For any that are on the call that remain, what I would say is you, know, you get better opportunities the longer you stay and the more experience you uh, you accrue. Um, and I was fortunate, I think. Pretty atypically, I left public accounting to be a CFO um, directly uh, of a company uh, in a systems engineering firm called Vicor in, in Palo Alto, and um, you know so that that happened I think because of the length of time that I spent uh, with the firm and also the last two years I was there I was a member of the high tech you know national office uh, that was responsible for on one side you know promulgating technical standards if you would for Uh, For technology uh, uh, industry clients, and then on the other side, the business development side of of growing the practice. Uh, So I I think whether you are, um, you know, in public accounting uh, today or um, past that point, if you had that initial part of your past, what I would say is the you know the the secret I found to long term success. One of the secrets is just getting as much experience as you can um, and. And taking advantage of those those uh, doors that get opened when they when they arrive you don't know when they're going to arrive but they do and you know on that note I think I was pretty fortunate uh, you know I'd been at, at Vicor for four years a little over four years as CFO and I got a you know phone call from a KPMG partner uh, who was the head of uh, their uh, practice helping clients find, um, you know, find uh, staff resources. And one of the clients was looking for a CFO a company called Unwired Planet. And I would say the first big break I got in my career was being offered a, a transfer um, that, in, you know, and where I ended up landing in Silicon Valley, I'd say the second big break came uh, landing the, uh, the CFO job at Unwired Planet. I'm sure I've had very few, if any, on the call uh, know anything about Unwired Planet. Uh, but it's because I think playing to fame was the team that I worked with were the first ones to put a micro browser on a mobile phone. I had the fundamental patents for the mobile internet. Um, And just before uh, going public, we changed the name of the company to Um, phone.com. I, I would say, you know, taking a company public um, was from a career perspective, transformative. Um, But the big thing, I think the big break I had in, um, landing, landing that opportunity was the experience I, I got working for the founder um, and CEO. Brilliant brilliant guy and the most demanding person I ever worked for. Um, and I would say everybody who worked for him said the same thing. And uh, I, I think I'm a far better executive today for the years of struggle that I had at times working working for him. Um, But it made you, you know, just made me better. Um, And I think that, you know, for any of you who are thinking about ways in which you can advance your career, one of the ways is, you know, work for really good people and um, accept that you're, you know, you're still learning um, and uh, do as much of a sponge as you possibly can to absorb as much uh, knowledge that you can from people like that, um, because they're rare when you get the opportunity to work for them.
0: Alan, let's go back a minute to Vicor. You were at KPMG, a senior manager. Uh, you got the call to become a CFO, which is pretty unusual to go directly from public accounting to being directly a CFO. you never worked in a finance department before. First of all, how did, was that through a recruiter or was that through a personal relationship? And then how did you think about your first six months on the job? How did you learn how to be a CFO?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, so it actually it, it was interesting. So it came following a conversation I had with the, uh, the managing partner for the office I was in asking if I was, uh, interested in another transfer within the firm to another location, um, uh, to be a partner. Um, and you know, I really wasn't interested in leaving uh, that part of California and, um, didn't think that the, uh, the opportunity that was being presented was one that, you know, from my career uh, was interesting. And so I, I, uh, I said, you know, to be honest with you, I think I'm more interested in probably going into industry. And, you know, a week or two later, he came back and said, well, you know, as, as fate would have it, we have this company that we know well that is looking for a CFO. Uh, would you be interested? And one thing led to another. And that's how I ended up there. Right. So as it actually to-
0: came from your boss. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty unusual.
1: Well, I mean, at this point, I'd, I'd I I wasn't going to stay at the firm. Uh, so, you know, in public accounting, if you're not going to stay at the right. firm, there's no point in, you know, staying at the firm for right? yeah. it, 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 once, once you announce yourself, right. Uh, you know, my six, first six months there, I could be, you know, I could say I knew what I was doing, going, uh, and taking it. I, I had a lot, I didn't know. Right. So how um, big a company was it? It was small, you know, it was, um, 30, 40 million. It was a system engineering firm. So, uh, we did a lot of custom, um, systems engineering work, um, in fact, most of the checks that were processed in the United States um, were ultimately, um, you know, were were uh, processed using Vicor's uh, system and, you know, it, uh, image processing systems. Um, so, you know, think about the team that founded the company had been at Technicron, which um, is up in uh, the Oakland, you know, the Oakland, Berkeley area um, of the Bay Area. And their claim to fame was building the image technology imaging technology for amex most people who have amex cards today don't realize that there was a time when every month when you got your statement you got a copy like as a physical copy of your chips that you signed right and and then the day came where you could scan those with high velocity and and not have that right and so that they built those systems um, for amex left started Visionary corporate technologies, VICOR for short. And, and we, uh, you know, we carried on the work uh, around imaging. The other thing that the company did was build the first desktop via teleconferencing technology. Uh, that was you know, spun out as a, as a separate entity later. Uh, so I, I would say, you know, this first six months, Jeff, you to your question, it was about trying to just learn as much as I possibly could about the business. And the same happened to every company I was a part of from from then on. You know, you walk in and you, you you bring the fundamentals of what you know of the profession you're in. In our case, finance. But there's an awful lot that you've got to figure out about a specific, you know, the specifics of a company that just just take time,
0: right? Do and you have a playbook that you use when you start a new role? I
1: don't know so much as a playbook, um, unless the playbook is asking lots of questions and and being very judicious in, in how many opinions you offer mm-hmm. uh, because
0: so you're know, not to be in a rush to make.
1: Right. Decisions right. Make and, happen. you know, and, and if you're, if you're lucky, you've got time, right. I mean, I described to you how the, you know, the, the founder of of our planet was, was very demanding. My first one-on-one with him was on my third day. And because I started midweek, got, you know, walked into his office. And before the door was closed, he told me that he was very disappointed. He thought I was an experienced CFO. Clearly, I, uh, I have a lot that I uh, need to learn. He thinks I might be smart, but it's not clear. Um, but so far, he sh- I should know that he wasn't impressed.
0: Based on your first three days at work? Three days. Oh, my
1: Lord. So what happened then? Oh, I went home to my wife. Uh, Is it a Friday afternoon? Is so it I going to get fired? <laughs> I figured that was the end, right? Um, but that continued for for a year. Was uh, he right? Uh, to a degree, yeah, yeah, yeah. And That's what I'm saying. I learned. I learned an awful lot. I mean, there was a lot more experience than I was able to show in like two days. Uh, but he confessed six, seven years later at an offsite when I confronted him about it. Like, why did you? Why did you treat? Not only me, but everybody. goes, in, in a startup, uh, by the way, I don't, I don't recommend this style. I think you got to have your own style as a CEO. Uh, but it worked for him. He said, in a startup, it's like boot camp. You got to find out who can go to war and who can't, and you want to get rid of the people that are going to get you killed quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this was his way of weeding people out.
0: So he just did that with everybody. Yeah,
1: he said he, yeah, he, he, he not jokingly uh, said that he had proudly tortured a thousand people in his career. Wow. That's, uh, that's a,
0: that's pretty unusual way of,
1: uh, but I'll tell you this, um, you know, we don't see each other often, but he's one of my best friends um, to this day. Right. No kidding. So we ended up going to war together and came out the other side and uh, you know, and, and won a lot of battles along the way.
0: So what did he expect from you that, that when, when, when I have, hear of conversations like that, it's usually a mismatch of expectations and delivery. So did he have certain expectations that you feel that he felt you weren't delivering and what were they? You know, here, here's a, here's an example,
1: right? Um, and you had asked you know, was he right? And so I would say in this specific context, yes. Um, when, and when I give you the example, so following week, um, we were, uh, to give context, we were, uh, unbeknownst to me, when I arrived that Wednesday, we were in the middle of a, of a private placement, uh, raising capital for the company. And, um, we uh, you know, were raising at that time, a large amount of $40 million. I mean, today that's laughable somewhat, but, but back in 1997, that was a lot of money. Anyway, um, and so he asked for a meeting to review the financial model uh, that was uh, going to be um, included within the offering memorandum. And this was on the Tuesday, so it's like day five. And thinking that since I'd been there since Wednesday, and they've been working on this for months. Probably the wise thing to do would be to have the person who actually built the model participate in the meeting. I invited them to the meeting, and we had a wonderful meeting. Everything was cordial, uh, you know, 45 minute conversation, and then you know, wrapped up, got back to my desk, which was 20 feet away. And you know, literally the minute I sat down, ding, email comes in. Um, and and the subject was about bill and i opened up about Bill. I goes bill comes to no more meetings you're either a driver or a passenger no passengers wow (laughs) so was he right i mean his point was like you there's you're the cfo you've got to you've got to carry this ball and you've got to you've got to understand the model and it's got to be right and you got to make sure it's right right um so i think he was right um And, you know, I think my my first instinct was I want to make sure that I have not only the person who's there to build the model, but I'm still in learning mode. So it'll be an opportunity for me to learn. But he expected me to arrive at the meeting with that work already
0: done. Well, there are other executives who think that you want to hire people who are really very good at what they do, and especially if they're specialists and especially if it's things like tax or other areas where, you know, most CFOs can't be expert at every area the CFO is responsible for. Do you think over your career you've you've followed that philosophy of trying to become personally expert at everything, or did you have a different point of view that well, no, you can be in charge and responsible, but but delegate and and trust people more? How do you think about that now?
1: Yeah. So I, as I as I said a few moments ago, I think each person has to have their own style, and what works for one what wouldn't work for another. His style wasn't mine. Um, I I would say I was much more, um, from a leadership style perspective, someone that looked to find really great people, and hire them and get out of their way. Um, And you know, I I would uh, you know if I jump forward from that you know first company I took public to Zendesk, the second one I took public, and you know just in terms of the contrast. Uh, there, the founder, uh, uh, Michael Zvain uh, you know, still the founder and CEO of the company. Complete polar opposite in many respects. Um, he hired me, and you know, possibly because I had taken a company public already, and in between that and Zendesk, I had been a CEO for almost ten years. I think he just felt like I don't have to micromanage this guy, and so he left me alone completely. Um, and you know we we, we had a regular one-on-ones. Don't get me wrong, but it, in terms of managing the administrative aspects of the business, I was left to, to manage it. Um, to his credit, he didn't. He had other things that were more, way more important for him to focus on, and that's what he focused on. Uh, and I would say, um, you know, the things as I look back on the Zendesk experience, that I'm probably um, happiest about. Um, or proudest about was the team that we assembled. And it was a we. I mean, it was a group effort to, to bring in great people. Uh, you know, the corporate controller uh, that, I, that I, you know, hired Amir Oren was you know, just world-class guy, right? I mean, really, really top-notch. Um, Christina Liu, uh, who he recruited in to be um, our director of SEC reporting compliance ended up being, the, you know, the chief accounting officer for the company world-class, right? Uh, and on and on, uh, John Geshke, general counsel. And, and so I felt much more comfortable hiring really great people that, you know, to the extent there were times I needed to engage, of course, in, in, every, um, in every business you have times when you've got to engage and direct, but um, they, they really were world-class and knew what they were
0: doing and didn't need uh, a lot of hand-holding. Well, Alan, you're talking about building a team and the very different cultures uh, coming from the CEOs of these two different companies. It would have, if if one of the people who worked for you was a VP finance or a controller and said, I'd like to become a CFO over time. I don't know if this actually happened or whether you think about it. uh, How how would you advise them of how to develop their career? And what what advice would you give them to how to get from where they were to becoming a CFO? Yeah, another another great question.
1: Yeah, I think, um, well, there's several several parts to, um, to you know in terms of answering the question. I think the um, you know the first is is to commit yourself to a you know lifelong commitment to learning. Right? You, you I I learn every day. Um, you know I've been doing this 40 years. I still learn every day um, something new. And um, so if you got to have a thirst um, for knowledge and and it's got to be sincere i mean it's not just learning for the sake of being academically knowledgeable you know knowledgeable it's it's more you know learning the business and and always having a finger on on the pulse of the business operationally and and just being relentless about Um, finding ways in which to do things better um, and to provide better insight and, and to be more supportive. Um, You know, the finance function by definition is a, is a support function in a way. It's a, it's an administrative part of the business, not a, it's not engineering building product. It's not sales, selling the products, not marketing, helping to, you know, build the brand and, and deliver leads to, to the sales organization. So it's a support organization. And, you know, if you want to build a great, finance organization um, it starts with understanding that you're there serving other people in the company to help them do their jobs and um, try to bang down the walls as much as you can to get things done um, which um, sometimes isn't the way that finance is perceived uh, you know the other the other part I would say that I think is important if you want to make that transition from you know say you're a VP of finance and you want to be a CFO um, I I would say and this is sort of to just kind of Give an example uh, of what I think a CFO does that's different from what a VP finance does. Um, so, VP finance will tell you um, what ha- um, happened. For example, you, and, and and this isn't every VP finance, so don't get me wrong. Right, um, you know the focus is you know results were this, you know revenue was X, bookings were Y, cash burn was you know was Z, um, and. Um, You know, it missed it aren't those numbers exceeded or miss plan by, you know, this much. Right. So that's VP finance is telling you what right CFOs do that, but they also tell you why. Right. So bookings were one and a half million dollars below plan, because the number of sales qualified leads that our sales organization had throughout the quarter was below what we modeled in our plan for the period and that resulted from marketing deciding to shift experimentally the allocation of digital marketing spend from AdWords to LinkedIn which proved to generate leads that were of lower quality and consequently we are you know they are shifting back I'm making this all up right shifting back to you know, allocate more to AdWords, and uh, that will, you know, that will lead to a period of time where we're going to have to restore the the number of leads and the quality of our leads. Um, and so we're taking the bookings target uh, for this quarter down, and adjusting spending across the business accordingly, so we stay on plan in terms of our operating profitability and cash burn. Big difference, right? One is what happened. The other is why it happened and what we're doing about
0: it. That's a terrific overview. Uh, where it leads to a question uh, that we're getting from the audience here, Diana, is asking about uh, diversity. Uh, here, you and I are two white men. We, we have uh increasingly uh, number of women and diverse people in finance organizations, but not as many as CFOs. Uh, you worked with people who worked in your team. Have, have you been able to give advice, or what advice would you give to a woman or a diverse candidate who would like to become a CFO? and how, how should they think about their career?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, for the record, the the person who took over for me at Zendesk as CFO was a woman, uh, Elena Gomez, and she's now um, the CFO of of Toast that she took public to her, to her credit earlier um, in last fall. Um, the company's out of Boston, but it's it's a great question. You know, I think um, I'm going to say I think we're actually living in times where it's um, it's. Never easy, but it's I think better today in terms of um, there being opportunities for uh, for women uh, and others you know with uh, you know of diverse backgrounds that are interested in moving up the uh, leadership ladder. I don't you know whether that's to be a CEO or to be a CFO or the head of engineering. Uh, I think it's better today than it was. Does it mean it's it's ideal and perfect? No. Uh, what advice would I give? I would give the exact same advice to you that I gave to uh, you know to a moment ago, which is you know focus on lifelong learning. Um, I left out you know what I think really is a maybe a third um, thing that you you should be focused upon, which is seeking seeking others that have succeeded before you um, and seeking them out um, and, and to learn from them. Right. And uh, when I say others, it doesn't necessarily have to mean if you're a woman, another woman who's successfully become a CFO. I think like just learning from um, other CFOs who've been successful um, writ large is, is in itself valuable. Um, as to how you access those people, um, it depends on what kind of business you're in. But you know, if we just take the example of a venture capital backed company, um, you know, venture firms will have over decades um, backed, hundreds of companies and have relationships with the leadership teams of those companies that go back decades. Um, and you know, your board amongst other things is there to help you succeed. Um, and it will take some courage perhaps, but raising your hand and, and asking um, if you can spend some time with the investors on your board who could help you with introductions to people who could um, serve as mentors for you. Uh, to the extent that that's something that you think would help you in your career. I would be, I'd be shocked if they didn't immediately want to be helpful to you in that. I think, you know, my own perspective is somebody who comes looking for help for me, um, I'm always um, eager to help, right? That That's an indication of somebody that actually wants to succeed, that wants to accomplish things. Um, and, you know, probably has inside a burning driven desire uh, to to do so. Um, so those are some of the thoughts I would provide. Um, and, um, you know, I think maybe there's a there's a reality that you should also think about as you map out your career, not that you can map it out 30 years in advance, but as you just think about when we'll move to the next, you're carefully considering the culture of the company that you're joining. Um, some companies are going to be more um, receptive and, and, uh, and focused on, on opening up opportunities for everyone and th- than others. And so you should do
0: your homework. When you talk about mentorship, I, I think about two different cases. One is where you're getting the mentorship from a senior person in your own company. And the other is the example you gave where maybe through a venture capitalist, you meet someone who's not in your company. Uh, and I've heard mixed things about, about that. Is it, is it artificial? Is it really valuable? how, have you had some positive experience with either being mentored by or mentoring people outside of your company, and how did how did it work? What was the what were the tactics that you used that make to make it effective?
1: Yeah, uh, I I don't think that I was one that um, turned to mentors outside of the, of the company that I worked for um, so much as looked for um, you know, look for mentorship within the company that I was a part of. Uh, but the, you know, the other way you frame the question or you know, mentorship that you provided, I mean, the work that I do today, pretty much day in and day out, um, is advising pre-IPO technology companies, uh, you know, the, the leadership teams, principally the CEO and, and CFO or head of finance, depending on where they are in their, in their uh, not only their company's growth, but their, the, the individual's career path growth. Um, that's all I do is mentor people. Um, um, and I take the experience that I've had and the good fortune I've had of, 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 um, of leading many tech companies um, through IPOs um, and, and subsequently, you know, having left Zendesk, starting my own firm. Um, you know, I have I've had two of my clients go public and a third was acquired by Google. Um, you know, that's just experience that I can draw upon to, uh, to share with the, with the clients I work with.
0: Well, tell us about what you're doing now then. So, you, uh, when you, in your first meeting with a new client who hires you, what's, what's, how did, how do you start the relationship? Uh,
1: So, you know, the, I think almost with one exception, every client that I work with today came as a result of an introduction from um, an investor I've worked with in the past that has uh, a a team that's built, you know, built an emergent company and they're looking, uh, they're looking for somebody who can help the team because the team's never done it before, right? And so they're looking for someone who's, you know, can hopefully help them avoid a few of the mines underneath the ground that are inevitably there, right? Um, and so it usually starts with a, with a warm introduction to the CEO or the CFO or the VP finance by, by one of the board members. And uh, my work is always, um, in, you know, thematically around preparing the company for an eventual IPO, Um, you know, I've worked with some companies that have gone public where I started working with them nine months before they went public and others that I started when they were series a and, you know, they're now series D and so they still haven't gone public. Um, but you know, thematically it's about preparing the company to be public. And I always focus on four swim lanes. The first is, you know, state of the team. Second is, you know, what's this, you know, tell me about your business systems, because you can have a company that's growing hundred percent year over year and, you know, has escape velocity in terms of its scale, but if the business system stack isn't ready, then you're not going public because you can't sleep at night and nobody would want to go public with, you know, Excel as their, uh, as their system of record. Um, And so third is depending on when I engage with them, they have either already started or need to start Getting the company known by institutional investors, and so third swim lane is tell me what you are doing in terms of attending investor conferences and have and getting getting the company known uh, by institutional investors, and then fourth is all right. So you've you've done, you've hired the team, the systems are ready to go. You're a known quantity in the sense that you've probably maybe you haven't had 350 meetings, but I think about HashiCorp, which had probably way more than that. Another client of mine uh, that recently you know went public, and um, they you know, you've you've at least gotten a company where the first time you're meeting them isn't on your roadshow, the investors isn't on your roadshow. So now it's the actual project itself, and helping them project manage, and and I'm behind the scenes. I'm not. Doing the work. I'm making sure that they're doing the things that they need to do in order to have a successful offering. And I will say definitionally, I consider a successful debut as a public company, um, maybe a little differently than, than, than other people. Uh, of course, you know, how the company trades the day it opens, you know, it it, it matters, right? Um, but I would, you know, I'd tell you, a hundred percent of the companies, uh, tech companies that went public in twenty twenty one, I believe, are under their issue price. They're all public, and you think about, okay, well, those investors, um, those investors invested, and in, and you know, how do you how do you really judge how the company did, right? And so, to me, it's always better to focus on where the cap table is two years after the IPO, and so the reason that. Is a regional time frame is over that period of time, your venture investors will distribute. Management will get some liquidity. Employees will get some liquidity, and and so if you sell ten percent of your company in an IPO, by the time you get two two and a half years out, seventy percent or more of the company is owned by institutional investors. So you've had six or seven IPOs in terms of number of shares that have had to be soaked up by public investors. When I say I help them prepare and think about how they're going to, you know. How, how they're going to perform as a public company. It's about making sure that you are meticulous in how you guide the street and and then execute against that over time. And those companies that excel at both guiding carefully and then delivering consistently over and over and over again against what they've said they would do, earn the public investors' trust so that they do absorb those um, those shares and so looking at a couple of years after an IPO if the stock is up from the IPO price nicely and you've got a super high quality of predominantly long-only investors in your cap table then that's when you give yourself a grade of, of how well a job you've done as a team
0: because so that's how I do it so uh the four, just to review the four key things you focus on is team systems investor meetings and project management Right. The team part of it is actually important, whether you're going public or not. H- how do you evaluate the team when you start off in a new environment where you haven't met the people before?
1: Yeah, so uh, I I, uh, I first I first um, consider who it is that I'm I'm giving the uh, feedback to, right? Um, so it's usually to the CFO as it relates to the finance organization, but sometimes it's the CEO. They don't have a CFO, right? Um, but, I, but I, uh, I say that because you you, um, you need to look at what you have today in terms of the team that you've assembled and the combination of the experience that they already have and um, through uh, interview of their boss, if it's the CFO or the, or the CEO, like, and as, at least an initial assessment of the horsepower that they possess. Is this somebody, say you've got a, you know, somebody in the controller role that has been in a public company before, been through an IPO. That person's got a lot of horsepower to be the person in that chair if the company ultimately goes public, right? Uh, If you don't have a controller, then it's pretty clear you're going to have to hire somebody. So it's about mapping what skills you have across the team at that point in time, and then building a roadmap for which ones you need to add and in what sequence. Right. Uh, you, know, you wouldn't hire an investor relations person to manage communications in, you know, with, with um, investors before you hired somebody to say, manage your stock administration, because that's a longer lead time project uh, that you have to get right before you launch your project than necessarily when you pull the trigger to hire somebody
0: to run investor relations, just as an example. Well, you talk about getting companies ready to go public. Uh, Lauren asked a question. What's your definition of a successful IPO? Uh,
1: you know, I try to I try to answer that. I think uh, you know clearly what happens on the day that you go public um, has some bearing on on the brand, if you would, of the company as as a as a newly minted public company. Um, but um, the first you know, the first way to think about it, at least the way I've always prioritized it, was through the lens of the investors who are buying your shares as, as public investors. And the minute you go public, from that point onward, the company is now public and you're all working for them. Um, yeah, you, you work if you're the controller for the CFO and the CFO for the CEO and the CEO reports into the board. But in the end, everybody there works for the investors that, you know, the public investors that, um, that, that ultimately own the company, and over time, will own vast majority of the company. Uh, and so, for me, success was was always measured based upon how we executed. You know, not not only for through the first say two years, but especially the first two years. So, you know, an IPO is a debut. For me, a debut is a two year period of time, not a day long event.
0: Uh, we have a couple of questions back about careers, uh, the career transitions, whether you wanted to stay at KPMG, ultimately make partner, versus moving on to become a CFO. Or uh, or for anyone who uh, feels that, whatever reason, they're not happy where they are, how do you have thoughts if someone, if let's say, someone came to you as a mentor and said, here's where I am in my career. I'm thinking about making a change. What, how do you coach them through that decision?
1: Um. You know, without naming individuals, I've done that several times and I always encourage them to, you know, have an initial conversation with me and then come back a few days later after they've had a, you know, completed a homework assignment. And the homework assignment is for them to really think about what they are good at, what they enjoy and um to make sure that what role that they are saying that they are interested in, um, that their capabilities as they've described them and their personality as they describe them, um, make them well suited for, for, for that role, right? Um, you know, I, I, I remember distinctly a conversation I had with somebody who was, um, I would say, one of the best revenue accounting people I've ever worked with. I mean, just knew the then current standard, the new 606 standard cold. Right. Um, and he was interested, uh, and had done that for going on 10 years in that role and, and was really interested uh, when he, when he reached out, like how do I become a CFO? And, and so I spent time really asking him and probing him on, on what he enjoyed and how he envisioned you know, himself, um, changing in terms of becoming one and by the end of the you know by the end of the you know two or three week conversation he came to the realization that actually he probably wasn't well suited to be a C, C, um, you know cfo um that is you know he is much more comfortable in in a um less um less of a, a, a leadership role where where he was in the external front line I and uh and so you know, he set his sights elsewhere, right? Now I've had a polar opposite conversation with somebody that came to me that I thought was a diamond in the rough, so to speak, that had tremendous potential and just needed encouragement to actually um, think more expansively about what she was capable of, right? Um, because she had sort of gotten in the, in the belief that this, she was only capable of X, right? And I said, no, actually, I think you're capable of doing my job. Right, not today, but you've got you know the the intellectual horsepower, the um, communication skills to be able to manage both internal and external communications with fidelity, and you know you you are somebody who really thinks um, and and comes to me most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time you actually come to me with the why things are happening, not just what's happening, right? Um, and you know I think she. Um, isn't a CFO today, but I'll be very surprised um, if she if she isn't in in time. Right? She's now on a, I think her third company as a as a public um, finance leader, uh, and um, I think her next
0: step will be as a as a CFO. Well, have her give me a call at Bessemer Venture Partners. We are hiring CFOs all the time, so I'd love to. Yeah, well, I will. Uh, the, the we talked about how, uh, and we have a question here from the audience uh, about. Uh, uh, the CFO t- backgrounds are typically one of three types: an accounting background like yours, a Wall Street background, capital markets, which is actually my background, or a financial planning analysis background. And all of us start typically with one of those three pillars. And then over time we have to learn the other two. Going, going back to your career, what how did you learn the other two? Coming from an accounting background, and your first CFO job, how did you learn the capital market side and the, the FPA side?
1: Yeah. Uh so I think part of learning the the third fpNA came from managing that function right so I was fortunate I mean I didn't start my career out of public accounting in a public company that would have been I think um, um, uh, a high-risk move for the company that would have hired me let alone me taking the the, the job so I had you know four or five years in which to manage and, and just manage that function building you know building the budgets for for the company um, you know, learning the capital markets, uh, that was very different, right? Um, uh, a lot of it came through the act of taking the, my first company public uh, and to a lesser extent through the private placement uh, financing that we did because we, uh, we ended up raising capital from a mixture of both crossover public investors as well as uh, institutional, not institutional, excuse me, uh, strategic investors. We were in the wireless space, so we had, you know, capital that came from Qualcomm and AT and T Wireless and um, Kyocera, which is a, at the time was a Japanese handset manufacturer, and and others. Um, and so, the, the real learning of the capital market side, I think, came from from doing. Right? Uh, how would I how would I guide somebody who has never had experience? Before, I think um, one of the things that's better today uh, than was the case when uh, when I look back in you know in the late '90s when I took my first company public is there are just a lot more forums through which you can interact through the investment banks that host conferences, private company conferences. So if the company that you are part of is at a point where it makes sense for it to be out in front of uh, public investors, you get the benefit of of, of learning. Um, before, you know, before it really counts. I mean, it always counts, but when you're public, then, you know, there's there's a lot less uh, tolerance for error. Um, when you're private and you're attending those conferences, you get the benefit of interacting and seeing that actually, there are really there's people like everybody else. They're masters of pattern recognition. And so as you are spending time uh, trying to present the company and the business opportunity you have, you really will have missed the plot if you don't pay keen attention to the questions that they ask and start to see the patterns yourself of the things that investor after investor after investor focuses upon. Because as you, as, as you, if you pay attention to those things then it starts to inform you a lot about your own business and what your business, uh, what things that the investors focus on about your business um, obviously are things that you should be taking back and paying attention to and making sure at least at a financial level, um, you are optimizing as much as you can before the day comes when you try to present yourself you know, to them to become public. Right? So you have, I think the opportunity today, um, if your company is far enough along um, and you're in the role um, that, you know, that would where it would be natural for you to attend those conferences for, for you to do so. And you know if the company's not yet at that point, this is another case where you can possibly get the help of your of your investors, your venture investors who um, know, you know, all the investment bankers that you'll ultimately deal with when the company is ready. And go be a fly on the wall, just ask for, you know, a pass to go and be an observer and see, you know, and that's not only the the private company conferences, but go go to the public conferences that they each have. You know, they're upcoming in the next month or so um, for for the tech, uh, the tech uh, side of of, uh, public markets, and they have others in the fall, Um, seek an opportunity to go and just sit in the audience and pay attention uh,
0: to to what transpires. So watch and learn and like a Broadway show instead of opening on Broadway, open off Broadway and Broadway. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, much more concise way to have answered the question. (laughs) That's great. Uh, Laura, let's turn it back to you, you know, you have some other comments. Yeah, um, thanks, everybody, for the really great questions. And if you have some, please do submit them. Uh, We'll get to a couple more before we run out of time. Um, But I just wanted to quick uh, say that we are Airbase. um, We are a spend management platform, which means that we uh, consolidate your corporate card program, um, reimbursements, and bill payments into one platform. It makes it a lot more uh, visible for your finance teams. And we can help uh, make your close go a lot faster. Um, So uh, just putting up a really quick poll, if you'd like to learn more, um, please select yes, or if you don't, no, that's fine. Say no. Um, but yeah, just wanted to throw it out there if anybody was interested. Um, and I'll throw it back to you, Jeff. Terrific. Uh, Alan, we have uh, two questions that i like to end on. The first is, what's the best advice anyone has ever given? you? Um, I guess I go back to uh,
1: the advice that I got from my law professor uh, at McGill, which was really think about what kind of role you want in a company and uh, and pick the Path that you take in order to get into an industry, um, you know, carefully, right? So that you know, I, I didn't know at that point I was going to end up in industry, but I, I, I wanted to keep my options as wide as and open as possible. And so, you know, I'd say that applies probably to everybody on this on this call. Um, The more the more options you have, the more opportunities that come your way, and then the. The, the life you have, the career you have, is a
0: function of which ones you choose to say yes that you're going to go do. My father-in-law calls that luck lines, like a fisherman having lots of lines in the water at the same time, you know, maybe you'll get a bite. I just keep those luck lines out there. And, and then when you hear when you feel the bite, decide, you know, is this the one we're going to go after? And last question, Alan, if you were going to write a CFO playbook uh, from a practical point of view, where someone on this call can do something different tomorrow morning than they've done before, to help their company or to help their career or their lives what what would you put as a number one on the playbook a awesome. that's a broad broadly worded
1: question you know I think again um, it's it's the individuals that can answer why I kind of come back to this thematically but you know the, the individuals that can answer why are are I've always been the ones that were really valuable to me and so when you think about it what you're trying to be is valuable to the company' you work for the you know the customers that you serve and and so condition yourself to really not only answer what but to really really make the effort uh, to be in a position where you can answer why things are are the way they are why things are happening the way they are not just be a weatherman that says you know it's going to be 80 degrees but you know the reason why is because this high pressure cell is moving in and it's going to you know uh, allow for sunny days but, you know applying it to finance um be, be in a much better position to be able to provide insight, not
0: just report the weather. I like what you said earlier about the why. It's There's this phrase asking the seven whys. So the example you gave before is, well, why is revenue short of goal? It's because we have fewer leads. But then you don't stop there. So why do we have fewer leads? And we have fewer leads because we shifted to LinkedIn. And then you can say, well, why did we shift to LinkedIn? Well, because we made a decision based on our gut instead of based on analysis. And so If you actually ask seven whys like that, you get pretty deep. And then the final thing is not just what happened, why did it happen, but also what we're doing about it is is pretty important. Well, Alan, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. It's a pleasure getting to know you better and hearing all about your terrific career. I look forward to hearing about all your future IPOs uh, from your new new consulting world. Uh, And thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Really appreciate it. And Laura, likewise as well. Thanks to you and to Airbase for hosting. Um, Much appreciated.
0: Great. Thank you, everybody, so much. Have a great rest of your day.
1: All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye.